I think the mission of the Free Beacon has always been the same, and that is to report stories that you wouldn't find in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So basically to approach the left the same way that the media approach the right. That's Matthew Continetti, editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Today we hear from Mr. Continetti about the investigative and editorial work that his conservative publication does. He also offers his take on the current election and describes what he thinks a Clinton presidency or a Trump presidency might mean for the nation. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. The Washington Free Beacon is an online conservative newspaper that began publication in February 2012. After only four years of existence, this publication has managed to climb the ranks of reporting and commentary on the center-right. Its rapid ascent is in no small part due to the work of Matthew Continetti, the Beacon's editor-in-chief. A mere 35 years old, Continetti is already considered a leading conservative commentator and critic, whose voice will be central to debate on the right in the coming years. In this episode, I talk with Matthew about his work at the Free Beacon, his critique of President Obama's tenure, and his take on the current election. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, Matt, thanks so much for uh, being a guest on our podcast. You're the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, an online newspaper that has quickly, since its founding in 2012, risen in the ranks of conservative reporting and commentary. What's the mission of that publication? Uh, What gaps do you think it fills in American journalism? Well, uh, thanks for having me. I think the mission of the Free Beacon has always been the same since we launched it in 2012, and that is to report stories that you wouldn't find in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So basically to approach the left, whether it's the Obama administration, whether it's the so-called professional left, whether it's donors to progressive and liberal causes, the same way that the media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, even news pages of the Wall Street Journal approach the right. And so that's with kind of an intense scrutiny. That's with a a level of criticism that is often missing, I think, when you turn to the news pages of of the more mainstream publications. So it's been said, at least it's sometimes said that the right today or American conservatism generally is fracturing. The so-called fusion of various conservative groups brought together by Reagan has come apart and the Republican base has finally gotten fed up with the establishment. And this is sort of the, the general reading, I think probably on the center left of the rise of, of Trump. Where do you see the free beacon and your own work as fitting into this narrative? Do you think of yourselves as part of the establishment or representative of the base or somewhere in between? You know, the truth is we don't give much thought to that, or mm. I don't give much thought to that. Like I said, the mission's always been very specific. I can expand on it somewhat, which is that we made, a, we made a decision early on with the Beacon, which is that the only op-ed to appear in its pages, its online pages, would be mine. And the bulk of the website to this day, even though we've since added a blog and we publish literary reviews on the weekends, but the bulk of the website to this day is news. And we felt that was important because so many conservative media had become obsessed with two things. One, who was true conservative, 
and to the horse race of presidential politics. By limiting our focus to the news, and more specifically the news on the left, new information that we could bring to light about the left, things that wouldn't be found anywhere else, I think we've been very successful. And we've also avoided kind of this internecine warfare over who or what is a true conservative, who best represents the grassroots or the establishment, and who is the best presidential candidate for the conservative movement or for America or the populist revolt. Now, having said that, obviously, since I'm writing opinion every week, I have more of a, a stated viewpoint. And I kind of see my job really is just to explain as best as I can what is happening in the world. I have been critical of Donald Trump, but I also tried hard, uh, and especially in recent weeks, to try to understand what is motivating him and his supporters. So uh, that's uh, I, I want to ask a, f- a few questions about, about what you just said. First, um, it's interesting you, you frame your work at the Free Beacon as being in many ways, or as covering in many ways, some of the things that don't get covered by the mainstream media. Often you do hear that the, the media itself has a sort of center-left bias. What, what stories have you broken or what editorials have you written that you, you don't think would have been covered by the mainstream media? Well, one just recently broke over the past couple of weeks, and that is one of my reporters, Lachlan Marque, while going through the emails uh, revealed by the Guccifer 2.0 link of DNC hacked emails, uncovered audio of a Hillary Clinton fundraiser in which she made uh, several comments, some about nuclear policy, another about the Bernie Sanders supporters that have since become major points of contention in the mm-hmm. presidential campaign earlier In 2015, another of my reporters, just trolling through donor records of the Clinton Foundation, discovered that George Stephanopoulos, the ABC news anchor, had been a donor to the Clinton Foundation and had never disclosed that. He didn't disclose it until we uncovered it. Our reporter, Bill Gertz, and our reporter, Adam Credo, regularly have scoops about national security that are exclusive to the Free Beacon. So I think there are many stories that are, are exclusive to the Free Beacon and that have real impact in terms of the day-to-day practical realities of politics in Washington, D.C. So do you do you attribute some of these sort of breaking stories to the particularly good investigative skills of your reporters? Or do you think, I mean, it could, of course, be that. But in addition, do you think that it's because no one else was just looking for these stories? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think having having a uh, tightened focus of inquiry helps, but it also helps to have good talent. And one of the things I've tried to do is hire the best reporters and writers that are available among younger conservatives. I think I've been lucky with uh, some of the hires, and we've had hires who've gone on to other places as well. Look, I, I think just culturally, a lot of the news media is not predisposed to be that critical of Democratic politicians or Democratic donors. And so Free Beacon is able to fill a space, which is we're going to be critical of the people that are normally kind of taken for granted or examined, you know, carefully. I mean, I, I, I have, obviously, I have to admit, I mean, the New York Times is the one that revealed the existence of Clinton's uh, mm-hmm. server, for mm-hmm. example. And the, Washington, and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have both done pieces on the Clinton Foundation. So we're there to supplement that. Of course, despite all those examples I gave you just, just now, I mean, 
I don't think anyone could deny that the bulk of the reporting from, main, from mainstream outlets has been devoted to Donald Trump and, and rightfully you know, scrutinizing him. So we're there to kind of be the, the piece that is missing and scrutinize the other side. I'm hoping we can talk a bit then about your take on the current election. Before we get to that, I want to develop a better understanding of your critique of, as, as you've said, mainstream liberalism or, for instance, the sort of ending of President Obama's uh, time in office. You suggest in an article titled Make Black Helicopters Great Again that the end of Obama's presidency, particularly as understood in a recent speech he gave at the UN, presents, quote, a homogenous world governed by rationally administered universal principles, a vision of affluence and peace, of moral imagination and compassion, and hybrid identity. These are noble ideas, you write. They have motivated men for centuries, yet so detached has that theory become from the everyday reality of the people that it is ossified and hollow. It's dogma, and it is, you write, careening toward a fall. This vision that you attribute to President Obama, uh, you regard as a, quote, almost parody of liberal theory. So what about liberalism, particularly the kind that we might be seeing um, in the current presidency? What about that is ossified and hollow, and why is it going to fail? Well, I think if you look at Barack Obama's statements, whether it's these post-mortem interviews he's been giving about his presidency or even that speech of the United Nations, it's a blithe refusal to admit that the world is not exactly working out according to his design. <laughs> hmm. And I think we can see that in Syria. I think we can see that in Ukraine. I think we can see that in Europe and the migrant crisis. And I think that we can see that in American politics as well, whether it's the troubles that his signature legislative accomplishment, uh, Obamacare is experiencing, whether it's the real social discontent that's been motivated by a surge in immigration that is visible in race relations, in the spike in the murder rate. All of these things are happening at once, and they're happening globally, too. There's been a move in country after country toward a more nationalistic sensibility, toward a, a doubling down on identity. You see that in Japan. You see that in China. You see that in India. You see it in Israel. You see it in Russia. You see it now in Germany with the Alternative for Germany Party. You see it in France with the rise of Marine Le Pen. You see it in England with the Brexit vote. You see it in Italy with the Five Star Movement. And I, you saw it over the weekend with the repudiation of the deal between the Colombian government and the FARC, the move toward the right in Brazilian politics. I mean, it's, it's global. This is a global phenomenon, a global rejection of liberal universalism. And it's manifesting itself in our country as well. If nationalism, for instance, is, is, is propping up in many countries and you view that and a variety of other things as being reactions against the sort of ossified liberal theory. So what do you make of the rise of, say, Sanders on the left in America? This is framed by many people on the left, and including magazines such as The Nation, um, as being likewise a response to hollow, sort of center-left liberal theory. How do you see the interaction between uh, the sort of new social democratic movements popping up in America? How do you see those interacting with the nationalism that you're talking about or the sort of reaction on the right against liberal theory? Well, they're both responses to, you know, what's called neoliberalism, more or less 
pro-globalization politics, free trade, free movement of labor and capital and goods. And what was Bernie Sanders' signature issue that he really took upon and did great damage to Hillary Clinton with? It was trade and it was corporatism. It was her connections to the big global banks, so the international capital flows. I think Sanders is very similar in some ways to the nationalistic revolt. And I think Donald Trump feels the same way because that's why he's tried again and again to appeal to some of Bernie Sanders' supporters. I mean, certainly not the younger voters who would be turned off by Trump, but perhaps some of those working class voters, whites without college degrees, who were attracted to Bernie's critique of Clinton and might not want to vote for her in a general election. That's interesting that you point out that you don't think younger voters who are or who did support Bernie would come out to vote for Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? Well, I think they supported Bernie for different reasons, honestly. I don't think they're necessarily supporting him because of his critique of global capital. I think they supported him because it was fresh. It was a, it was a movement. He stood for all the good things. He stood for radical change which young people tend to be for. Yeah, maybe they do. Maybe there are university students who really care about trade agreements. I, I don't think I encountered many of them. When I was in college many moons ago, the big issues were the World Bank and IMF. And again, those, those were kind of proxies for globalization. The young, young millennial voters, I just think you see, that have a visceral reaction against Trump. They don't like the uh, attitudes he embodies toward women, minorities. They don't like his manner. It's not the way that they were brought up. They don't like the way he talks or what he says, this whole idea of competition, zero-sum games, toughen up. That's certainly not the way millennials were raised. That's interesting because, I mean, a lot of what you've been saying might suggest some common ground between um, the left and some elements of the right, at least with respect to their mutual or shared reaction against uh, sort of neoliberalism. I mean, do you think that then the do you think that the at least the Trump campaign might, in a sense, be an impediment to finding such common ground? Or would you? I mean, perhaps the same could be said for Bernie Sanders when you think of some of the supporters for Trump. I guess my question is this: how how possible do you think common ground is between the left and the right in their you know shared reaction against neoliberalism? Uh, there, I think there is some possibility for common ground. I mean, one thing I forgot to mention, which I should mention now, is, of course, Bernie's other issue against Clinton, which was war. Mm-hmm. Here, too, we have kind of the scripts flipped with the 2016 election, where the Democratic candidate is the supporter of American internationalism, an American-led world order, and the Republican candidate is not, or says he's not. And Bernie, of course, was against the war in Iraq, is against further entanglements overseas, doesn't know much about foreign policy. It was clear from some of his interviews, but but the general idea that America should refrain from taking on too heavy a burden globally was very much real, and probably young people very much supported that. Uh, So I do think among young people, even if they don't like Trump for personal reasons, they may be feeling as though the liberal world order, globalization hasn't been paying off for them, whether it's wars, which they do not like, whether it's lack of economic opportunity, which they don't really seem to have, those those sorts of things, or whether it's kind of the idea that the system is set up and by and runs for uh, global corporations. 
That's so that's interesting. I, I, that reminds me of another article you recently uh, wrote. And I think that this article actually might show some of the reason why some Trump supporters and some Sanders supporters might have some or find some common ground, at least in reaction to um, the current political situation. Uh, you write in an article called The Politics of Dissociation that, quote, this is a moment or ours is a moment of dissociation, of unbundling, fracture, disaggregation, dispersal. But the disconnectedness is not merely social. It is also political, a separation of citizenry from the governments founded in their name. They are meant to have representation, to be heard, to exercise control. What they have found instead is that ostensibly democratic governments sometimes treat their populations not as citizens, but as irritants. I think this, so this sounds like some of the rhetoric coming from from the right and of, of, of anger over the sort of liberal establishment at the same time it seems like movements such as Black Lives Matter would also identify, I mean, perhaps they would use even stronger terms uh, to describe the governments treating their populations not as citizens, but as irritants, perhaps even as, as criminals, they might, they might view it that way. So can, can you unpack what you mean, especially about that, that last sentence? What, what, what do you see as, as happening that citizens would start to feel like they're just irritating their government rather than being actually seen and heard and understood by them? A look at the reaction to uh, public disapproval of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Washington right now is scrambling to figure out how the deal might come into being, despite both presidential candidates saying they oppose it because of public opinion. Look at the opposition to... So I tend to view opposition as best expressed in electoral returns. And so the two examples I used from a conservative perspective in that piece were Obamacare, which was set in effect despite the electoral repudiation of the the policy. And also uh, President Obama's expansion of his administrative DACA, the amnesty for the Dreamers, uh, despite losing the 2014 midterms and saying himself 11 times that he didn't have the power to do it. These these things add up. And you you see it in Brexit where there was that moment after Brexit where British elites were wondering how they could scurry around it. It doesn't seem like they will. You see it now with the Colombia peace deal being repudiated. The current Colombian president is wondering if there's any way to get the agreement to be enforced despite what the public says. I do think there's this feeling of separation that, that, that the government is not reflecting what the people are telling it to and in a democratic system that can lead to real tension and turbulence. When I say the people, I mean the way that the electorate manifests itself in election returns and specifically ones that are done. Midterm elections are interesting because they tend to be more policy based, at least. You see this in 2002. There was an open question, the war, for example. That was the question of the 2002 election. And the Republican Party, President Bush's party, picked up seats. It was a clear signal that the people, Mm -hmm. as manifested in those returns, was looking was endorsing his policies. Now, they turned against him. And so the 2006 election was clearly a repudiation of Bush. So that's how I see it. I mean, I just, I mean, you can also look at public opinion. I mean, all of the public opinion polls for the health care plan, I mean, it's been, they've been negative for almost six years. So that's how I kind of gauge it. And, if, and I also look at foreign intervention, too. I mean, once, it's just clear, once the public turned against the wars, and the government did not respond in a way that it the way that the public wanted, that leads to real upheaval in terms of electoral politics. 
Recently, you were interviewed on Ricochet, which is a, an important podcast of the center right. And you were asked who you thought was going to win the presidency. And you were asked as well who you wanted to win. You said you really didn't know who you wanted to win. In particular, you admitted that, quote, I really detest Donald Trump. On the other hand, I feel like the left has gotten out of control. Could you explain both both those responses? Why, why would you say that you detest Donald Trump then also? And this, this would, of course, just be, this would be a continuation of some, some of your other comments, but why do you think the left has gotten out of control in this particular moment? Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory why I'm, I don't like Donald Trump. If you listen to him long enough uh, and you see the way he acts, you see clearly his contempt for knowledge, his attitude toward truthfulness, the way he responds to adversity. I mean, I, I just don't like the man very much. However, I do think the left is uh, overreached and has been doing for some time, whether I think, I think that's in terms of immigration policy, mm-hmm. where I just don't believe, I do believe government can control who comes into this country. And if they, I don't believe building a fence on the southern border is racist or even necessarily antagonistic toward the government of Mexico. Judicial policy, for example, there was a recent article written in The New Yorker that, you know, it's been uh, my lifetime, basically, uh, 35 years plus since we've had a liberal Supreme Court. And the revolutionary changes, I mean, think of just the major changes in American life we've had with the conservative Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. (laughs) So I'm kind of worried about what what more social transformation would be um, uh, made uh, unaccountably by a Supreme Court with five liberals on it. I think that the the direction of government, the the attitude of President Obama has been very flippant toward Congress from the very beginning. And it's not just Republicans who say that. If you talk to Democrats in Congress, they would mm-hmm. say this thing. And so this rule by administration, this idea that that it's the executive agencies who are unaccountable to no one are going to just begin issuing rules determining who is allowed in what bathrooms or whether nuns have to sign off on contraception, which they find morally abhorrent, or who who is by fiat a permanent legal resident of the United States, or how many coal plants have to shut down by when, without any acknowledgement that election returns might have a, have a role to play in these decisions. That, I, that I'm truly against, and I, I think it, there has to be. I also feel like culturally the left is on the march. When Samantha Bee is criticizing Jimmy Fallon for not being tough enough on Donald Trump, it's just a myopia to me. There, he's still, I mean, he's still getting 47, you know, 45% of the vote. That's a lot of people. Mm. Uh, they, they have to be represented too, or at least they have to be acknowledged and I feel like the left is just kind of dismissive of so many things. It's so easy to write everything off as racism or bigotry or xenophobia. And this has been, by the way, a constant critique of the left or the right. It doesn't start with Donald Trump. It's gone on for, for decades. It's not nuanced. If the election of Donald Trump somehow wakes them up to this, the fact that they do not actually have a monopoly on truth and on politics in this country, then, you know, maybe that's what it will take. 
Do you see that element of what you just described, this sort of dissatisfaction with, uh, you, you might call it political correctness on the left, and the sort of the sort of cultural pull that people on the left have and in the media, is that what gave rise to Donald Trump's sort of attitude and its appeal to people on the right? Because a lot of the policy issues you're talking about could be represented by other kinds of people. But you yourself said that, that Trump's attitude, though you detest it, it seems like a lot of people would like it for precisely the reason you're describing. So I guess my question is, what gave rise to Donald Trump? And was it not just his supposed policy stances, stances against the liberal establishment, but also his, his critique of political correctness? Is this what is carrying him through the presidential election? And is this what would make him, in fact, a possible next president and, and an actual threat to, to Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I remember during the Republican primary when asked what, why voters like Donald Trump, a lot of his people would say it's because, quote, he told it like it is, close quote. And I think that speaks to kind of this political uh, willingness to be politically incorrect, a willingness to say things that are just completely beyond the pale that his voters like, his supporters like that. I do think that's true. Uh, I think another thing motivating support for him is kind of the politics of dissociation. We discussed this idea that somehow the executive, the executive branch needs to be brought under control. And maybe it's this person who has never been a part of government might be able to do it. And then thirdly, there are just regular Republicans, people who always vote for Republican and they're going to vote for this Republican because as much as Trump deviates from conservative dogma, on the big questions, the questions of immigration, the questions of judicial appointments, the questions of taxes, the questions of guns, he is kind of cut from the Republican cloth, and so they'll vote for him in November. What about conservative commentators such as, say, David Brooks, or I think you might be able to count Michael Gerson among, among these people as well, who are perhaps part of the Never Trump camp? Or if they're not, they just view his his manner, his what what they what they would call, and I think what plenty of people would call um, his racism and sexism as being so abhorrent that they would rather extend the sort of liberal st- establishment politics as they see it into the next four or even eight years. How many of those sorts of Republicans do you think are out there? Are they large enough to actually pose a threat to? Trump just by the fact that they wouldn't vote for him and they would actually vote for Clinton instead? Yes, I think they do. They're, I mean, I don't think there are people who think exactly like Michael Gerson and David Brooks. However, I do think there are enough Republicans who are a little bit leery of Donald Trump or who are at least not willing to tell pollsters that they're going to vote for Donald Trump, that it could pose a, a threat to him. Uh, Romney won married women, for example. In 2012, Donald Trump certainly will not. He does have a problem with women voters who dislike his him. So that would be a problem. And a candidate who was perhaps where Trump is on the deviations from conservative orthodoxy, who did oppose globalization in the way that Donald Trump does, and yet who didn't have all of the character flaws he does, might be running much more strongly against Hillary Clinton. That said, he's still within striking distance. So it's, it's an amazing thing to behold. So win or lose, what significance do you think the Trump campaign will have on the Republican Party, on conservatism, and on American politics generally? Well, I think it's already had a tremendous significance. I think it's already driven, 
it's accelerated a process that's been going on for some time, which is that white voters with college degrees are moving steadily toward the Democratic column. And the Republican Party is becoming much more of a populist party. And social issues, which have always been kind of the third part of the Republican stool, are now taking precedence. And then when, we, when I say social issues, we immediately think abortion and same-sex marriage. But indeed, it's a much more expansive category. It includes the gun issue. It includes the immigration issue. It includes the judge issue, which is a proxy for all of these social hot-button topics. Those are really coming to the fore. And then if you look at, obviously, foreign policy, Trump is a repudiation of post-war consensus. I mean, post-World War II consensus. And on economic policy, which he doesn't really devote that much time to, interestingly, uh, he, I mean, he has this gonzo supply-side tax plan. He doesn't really talk about it all that much. He's more interested in trade and immigration. I really see it as kind of a social issues right, a, a populist right that has always been part of the Republican coalition, but is now, I think, increasingly dominant in it. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen on November eighth. I certainly don't know what's going to happen beginning November 9th. But how the Republican Party deals with this, whether that trend I mentioned accelerates and you have more college degree holders just becoming Democrats, how that changes the Democratic Party would be interesting because it too has problems. By the way, these are the most pressing questions of American politics. What do you see as some of the central fractures in the left or on the center left, and? If Clinton wins, what do you think the next four or eight years will look like? Well, first, I mean, I think the Democratic problem is similar to the Republican one, which is that the Democratic elites have raised the expectations of the Democratic base to a point where if they don't fulfill them, they're going to have a very angry and indeed radicalized base on, it, on their hands. And so I think a lot of the movements, the social protest movements, the populism, the support for Bernie Sanders is a reaction in some ways to Obama's failures at least in less size, to really accomplish a whole lot. I disagree with that analysis, but that's the way they feel. That's what motivates them. And if Clinton fails, uh, either in 2016 or 2020, then you're right. I think the reaction would be to double down on, uh, like you see, kind of the instead of true conservative, you're going to have debates over who's the true progressive. And Looking at what's happened to the Republican Party, I'm not sure that's a debate that's going to end, wind up being healthy for the Democratic Party, which, by the way, is not exactly in the best of shape. I mean, it's had it's won two presidential elections. I believe it's likely to win a third one this year, though, I, again, I, I really don't know. But at the, at the congressional and state level, the Democratic Party is already reeling. If they were to lose this election, 2016, it'd be a real setback for not only the party, but moderate liberals. And, you know, if Clinton wins, I think she's still vulnerable against a candidate who isn't Trump, because the, the the election, obviously, that the only question of this election is, how do you feel about Donald Trump? If you think Donald Trump can be the next president of the United States, I think he'll win the election. Now, a lot of people, and according to polls, most people don't think he should be the can be the president of the United States or should be the president. Now, notice who I haven't mentioned, Hillary Clinton. And if the election had been about Hillary Clinton, about whether she should be the next president, whether she's capable, what, what, what her baggage is, then I think she would lose. Entirely possible another pre another Republican presidential candidate would make that case in 2016 and defeat her. It's very probable, should she win, with the core issues of trustworthiness and honesty having not been fixed by her campaign or by herself this year, the next Republican nominee will make those issues the campaign. That, and, and of course, forget about all the 12 years of 12 years of presidential rule is much harder to defend than eight years as 
George H.W. Bush found. I really don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think it's remarkable, by the way, that Donald Trump has basically put away Ohio with, you know, a month left before the election. And no one is remarking about this. I think that speaks real pain among the uh, the people for whom Donald Trump represents hope. And I, I, I just, you know, I, I'd imagine Bill Clinton in particular is is looking at that and thinking that President Clinton, President Hillary Clinton, is going to have to address that if she has any chance of winning re-election. I know I got to let you go here in a couple minutes. I do want to ask just a few questions about you, just to give listeners a sense of of, of where you come from and what your vision for the future of journalism in America is. And my first quick question, uh, where did you grow up and uh, where did you go to school? I grew up in suburban Virginia in Fairfax County. I started watching the McLaughlin Group <laughs> when I was, what, eight something, where I first saw Fred Barnes. And I went to Lake Braddock High School. It's a public school in Fairfax County. And then I went to Columbia University for my undergraduate degree. And uh, I've had no other education and self-taught otherwise. So when did you start thinking of yourself as a conservative? College. A combination of things. One was reading Plato's Republic in my sophomore year. And then within that same, count, within that same year, the 9-11 attacks occurred. It's the combination of reading... Not only Plato, but then as part of the core curriculum, reading the Federalist Papers, Tocqueville and Burke, and then having 9-11 happen in New York City when I was charged with about 33 uh, first-year students who had just shown up in New York and then 9-11 happened. I was their resident advisor. All, mm-hmm. those, all those things kind of made me move away from whatever liberalism slash leftism I, was, I had conceived of myself as holding and more of a more of a conservative. Can you talk a bit more about that? What was the effect of 9-11 in particular on you? Did you back away from from sort of interventionism or what, what did you what did you what shifted in you? I became more interventionist as okay, a result yeah. of 9-11. I remember this is there's a difference. You know, if you're 18 and 9-11 happened, you have a very different worldview, I think, than if you were 18 when the Iraq war happened. And so I was 20 when 9-11 happened, and this obviously destroyed any feeling of invulnerability and also awakened me to the idea that there are people out there in the world, now apparently within our own country, who wake up every day trying to kill innocent people. And hence, I felt that we need to take a much tougher stance toward them and stop them before they do it. And so that made me a hawk become less interventionist, obviously, as a result of the Iraq War and trying to think through how we might tackle this problem, which still very much exists and may actually be have been intensified over the last several years. But 9-11 certainly made me a hawk. You mentioned Plato. What thinkers or writers have been most important to you growing up as a conservative? I think I read uh, an article in the Washington Free Beacon as well as the National Review, a list of books that you said every young conservative should read. Um, what are some of those books and, and why were they important to you? Well, it's a, uh, it was a little piece I did that I was happy to see got some traction. Uh, some of those books include Paul Johnson's Modern Times, which is a revisionist history of the 20th century. George Nash's History of the Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, which is probably the best introduction to the type of conservatism conservatisms that I adhere to. Uh, Charles Krauthammer has probably been one of the more important writers for me since I was, even before I considered myself a conservative. Uh, his book, Things That Matter, that's on that list. Oberon Waugh's memoir, Will This Do, is just a hilarious book and influenced me as a writer. I, I'm a bibliophile. I'm obsessed with books, and I have too many of them, and I read too many of them. Obviously, Irving Kristol. <laughs> has been um, a central intellectual influence 
Uh, so Crystal, Krauthammer, those would be the main ones. Uh, Evelyn Wall. And, uh, you know, the, the model of William F. Buckley Jr. is very important to me. Not so much for what every little piece he wrote, but the fact that he was such an active player in the intellectual life and political life of his day. And he was also a role model for, for so many young people. I think that's important, too. So it's interesting you bring up Buckley in particular. It does seem like, and I wonder if you agree, it does seem like there's a lot more interest right now, or at least in the past couple of years, in in figures like Buckley, and then, of course, on the left, figures like Gore Vidal or Norman Mailer. There, there was that book that, or, or excuse me, that film that just came out called Best of Enemies. I, I just read about a new book on Buckley's show Firing Line that's, that was actually written by a professor at MIT uh, about conservative commentary in the 60s and uh, looking at Buckley in particular as kind of this icon and role model for a lot of thinkers and, and, and doers on the right. As you look into the future for conservative writing and commentary, do you do you hope for a, a second sort of heyday of kind of Buckleyan uh, conservative commentary? Well, it's hard to imagine because the media landscape has now become so fractured. The media is such a democratizing force now, new media, that you're not going to have one William F. Buckley, but you're probably going to have several, each doing their own thing and each representing various strains of conservatism. Buckley's great gift was in unifying various parts of the conservative coalition, the traditionalists, the libertarians, and the cold warriors, probably most importantly, cold warriors, into something called movement conservatism and having a journal. So having an intellectual product that came out every other week that, that kind of served as a touchstone for, for million, for well, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, but then, of course, more conservatives and uh, generally. Now, because of the internet, you know, you have people who read blogs, you have people who read the Free Beacon, you have people who read Breitbart, National Review, Weekly Standard, Commentary, Daily Caller. I mean, the list is endless. And so there's there's no real ecumenical figure like there was with Buckley. Maybe that's one reason there's so much interest in him. I mean, the conservative movement has changed as well. The, the glue of the conservative movement was the Soviet Union. And conservatives have already kind of always come together when confronted by a common enemy. And I think there's just extreme disagreement now among conservatives who, uh, about who that common enemy might be. Now, if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, then I think a lot of the wounds from this election will heal rather quickly just in opposition to whatever she tries to do. On the other hand, she could very well exploit some of the wounds. She could try to peel off people like Michael Gerson, David Brooks, Ben Sass, and by governing more like her husband did. We really don't know uh, what she'll do. In fact, that's probably one reason the left is somewhat worried about her. I've given up making predictions after being very much surprised by the 2012 election. So I will say, though, that uh, just the way that the technology operates, I don't think we have someone like Buckley. But I do think we're going to have many figures who kind of perhaps inspire political thought, reflection, and maybe even action. Matt, thanks very much for talking with me. Uh, This has been excellent getting to know you and some of your work. Thank you. That was our interview with Matthew Continetti editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and also comes swiftly to my aid whenever I mess up Skype or my recording device stops working. Thank you, Travis. Finally, Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph, as well as our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.